All right, if you have your Bibles, you can grab them if you would. Uh, our passage is Galatians chapter 1. We're going to be hitting verses 10 through 24, Galatians 1. If you're using a device, we use the English Standard Version, so you can click on that so you can follow along proper, as the British would say. Um, hey, just a quick summary uh, from last week. So what we're looking at here is that the churches in Galatia, who Paul is writing this letter to, they're in trouble. They're in trouble because men from their ranks have risen up, and they've risen up and they've raised suspicion. And they've raised suspicions that the gospel that Paul preached to them wasn't good enough. It wasn't complete enough. Something needed to be added to it. It wasn't just justification by faith alone. In other words, it wasn't just believing in Christ's uh, finished work on the cross for your salvation. They were also saying that he wasn't the apostle he claimed to be. He lacked some legitimacy. So uh, what happens is they, they start believing that and then they begin to desert uh, the gospel. They begin to desert the true gospel that Paul preached to them in exchange for a distorted one. And so again, the Apostle Paul, who was the one who originally planted these churches, I mean, he just kind of flips on them. He writes them a letter and he flips out and he says, dude, I am astonished at the report that I'm hearing about you deserting the gospel. And his rebuke to them in a nutshell was just simply that a Jesus plus something gospel is no gospel at all. A Jesus plus something gospel is no gospel. We've been watching the Great British Bake Off a lot, so I have dessert on the mind. Somebody cheered. Um, but, you know, I was thinking about this, and if you're in my community group, it was an illustration I gave, so you can just, you know, you can wonder why I'm not as creative as I need to be on Sunday morning right now. Um, but I was thinking about um, dessert, right? And I was thinking about my wife just making this beautiful dessert, you know, and she puts it on the counter and it looks amazing and I'm, you know, my mouth's watering and I just can't wait to slice into it. And I take a bite of it and it turns out that the white stuff that she put into it that was supposed to be sugar ends up being salt, right? Now, now something's going to happen when that happens, which is I'm going to spew it out of my mouth and I'm going to be like, what are you trying to do to me, babe? Like, what, like, is this a joke? Like, what, like, did I do something? Are you trying to get back at me right now? The point is that no matter how beautiful it looks, if she mixed, if she added an ingredient to it that was not meant to be there, it wasn't worth eating, right? And so in the same way, any gospel that calls you to add your own works to the finished work that Jesus accomplished on the cross is like a salty dessert, it's a no gospel at all gospel. Any gospel that attempts to eliminate the need for grace simultaneously eliminates peace with God, right? Because that's the only way we have peace with God is from the grace of Christ. So today, Paul, he kind of continues his rant. He's ranting in this letter, and he continues his rant to the Galatians as he defends the gospel. And the way that he defends the gospel is through his testimony, it's through his testimony. And what this is going to remind us of is that we all have a testimony. We all have a testimony that is being shared all the time and it's being exposed all the time. It's going to sound like I'm picking on my wife this morning. I'm not. I just love her. But occasionally what happens is um, all, my wife will walk into the room or we'll be out somewhere and it turns out that she's like kind of smeared her mascara on her face. And uh, like sometimes for whatever reason, I just don't tell her. I, I don't know, you know, like I'm not that bothered by it, right? So the point is, she'll be walking around the house for hours 
and finally look into the mirror. If it was me, I would have caught it after a minute because I look in the mirror, but she, she's not as vain as me. So she eventually looks in the mirror and she comes and she goes, why didn't you tell me I looked like, you know, a raccoon here or whatever? And I said, I don't know. I like it. it it's, I like the look. I like to look. But this is kind of like our testimonies. That was a ridiculously horrible illustration. But it's like our testimonies. Whether you like it or not, you are always living out your testimony. You can't escape it, right? And whether you like it or not, they always reveal one of two, which I said in the beginning, rival glories that you're seeking after, right? Um, I don't know how many of you guys saw this recent movie they, that came out. It was called... Uh, uh, Borg versus McEnroe, and it was about the, the, the infamous match between Bjorn Borg and John McEnroe back in 1980 when McEnroe was this upcoming tennis player. Um, and it was really, it was a fascinating story. And what you're seeing uh, in the story play out is that each were seeking personal glory on the tennis court. That's it, right? They're seeking glory. They want to be the winner. There can only be one winner. There is only one glory, and it absolutely could not be shared between Borg and McEnroe. One person gets it, right? That's it. So for us, thinking about it in terms of our spiritual lives, the good news of the gospel is this. Jesus saves and he sanctifies us and he gets the glory instead of us. He gets the glory instead of us. In fact, uh, 2 Corinthians 15.5 says this. It says, and he died for all. That those who live might, what? It says, no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So there's this thing about us constantly drowning in self-glory and Jesus coming and saving us so that we are now unlocked and able to give him glory, right? The gospel is kind of like a set of vice grips, right? that secures itself to our heart and literally rips it from the grip of, of self-glory. Who says, I don't know anything about tools? Right there, right? But there remains at the same time this rival glory lurking in our hearts that says, hey, what about me? What about me? I got something. I bring some game into the equation. I do my part. God helps themselves who, God helps those who helps themselves, right? How many of you guys have heard that line? God helps those who help themselves. I would ask how many of you think it's true, but then I'm just going to like humiliate you right now by telling you that that's like nowhere found in the Bible. Like that's anti-gospel. God helps those who help themselves. But we kind of default into thinking that way, right? So again, you know, there may be no I in team, but there is no team when it comes to your salvation. There's no team. It's Jesus plus nothing equals what? Everything. That's the gospel that Paul is just in a tizzy about that they are subbing out. So let's pick up in verse 10 and see how he continues his letter to the church. He says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. 
For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently. And I tried to destroy it. Verse 14, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia, and I returned again to Damascus. Verse 18, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. I'm going to stop right there. So the first thing that we're going to see here is that Paul gives a defense of the gospel before giving his testimony for the gospel. So Paul's defense of the gospel, what he starts out with here saying is that he, he's not a man pleaser. He's not a man pleaser because the gospel he received was in fact not from men, but it was from Jesus. So he begins his defense of the gospel by pointing out that serving Christ is incompatible with trying to please man. So it's like you cannot multitask those two things. You know, if you look at recent studies that talk about multitasking, what they've come to is that nobody really can do it. It's not really a good idea. We should focus on one thing because when we multitask, what we're doing is we're diminishing the effect that we have on all these different things that we need to uh, give attention to, right? So it's the same way here. Like we, we cannot multitask pleasing man and pleasing God. We're only doing one or the other, right? And that's what Paul is trying to point out here. But these men who were leading the Galatians astray, they were doing just that. They were saying, look, you guys, it's not enough to just do what Paul said. You also need to keep Jewish laws. You also need to get circumcised. We looked at this last week. And by the way, you need to ignore this Paul guy because he's an imposter. And he's an imposter because he received the message he preached from the teaching of these other apostles. So why is, why is what he is saying any more important than what we're telling you right now? What's the big deal is essentially what they were trying to say. But Paul denies and he defends those claims like how we just read. He said, it was not man's gospel. I received it by revelation in Jesus Christ. And he gets to some technicalities. And he said, let me just tell you what happened right after my conversion. I didn't even see these guys that you're claiming I received it from. It was years and years before I even had connection with the people that you're claiming I got my information from. So Paul gives this timeline of events after his conversion. So for us, what does this mean? It means that our defense, your defense, okay, for the gospel is Paul's defense, right? We believe in faith that Paul's words were given to him through direct revelation from Jesus Christ. You know what that means for you and for me? It means that if others doubt your belief in what we hold to here, which is the authentic gospel, and you're a you're tempted to desert it. You're tempted to desert the true gospel like the Galatians because the pressure for, for you know, outside influences, calling on your beliefs, you know, coming up with claims. Man, if that's a temptation for you, remember what Paul is saying here. You do not need man's approval for the salvation of Jesus to be affirmed in your life. That's not what you're looking for, nor do you need it. Tim Keller made a quote. He said, 
A Christian has more than an intellectual belief in Christ. They sense a personal relationship. So it's different. Our defense for the faith always goes back to the author of our faith. It always goes back to a person who will finish the good work that he began in us. So again, it's not static, it's always moving because we serve a God, by the way, that while you were sleeping last night, he was not. He was doing a work even in your sleep or even in your insomnia, okay? Hebrews 10.9 tells us that our faith comes from the assurance of things, what? Hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, Right? It's a faith wrapped in a hope. Second Peter, the apostle Peter reminds us, he said, look, you guys, he was writing to some churches, and he said, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses, he says, of his majesty. Hebrews 10, 23 encourages the church to, it says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, like Scott pointed out this morning. And then it says this, for he who promised is faithful. And then it says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together like we're doing here, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So our defense for the gospel is Jesus himself who we believe by faith and with hope. And as Paul tells us in Romans 5, 5, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we find our assurance by the Holy Spirit living in our hearts that everything we learn about who Jesus is and what he has done is true. It doesn't matter what they say. So Paul's defense of the gospel is none other than Jesus himself. And Paul gives a testimony of grace in verses 13 through 16. He was once a persecutor until God, it says, predestined him by grace to be a preacher. Maybe you guys have come out of churches where, man, I don't like that predestination word. I don't believe in predestination. I struggle with predestination. Well, the Bible talks about predestination, so we believe in predestination right? That doesn't mean we have minds to fully understand it. It means that when we think about predestination, about God calling us before the foundation of the world, we are beholding a wondrous mystery, which is what we just sang, right? But this is what Paul is laying out for us. This is the, this is the evidence that Paul lays out for himself and his testimony. He spent his former life, he says, as a violent persecutor who tried to destroy the church. So this is how he leads his testimony. And what Paul gives us, he gives us this sort of before and after glimpse of who he was before he was converted to the gospel. And you guys ever see, man, it, it reminded me of those horrible before and after ads that you see, you know, they pop up on Facebook you guys ever see, though? They're just ridiculous, man. You got you know, you the before picture of a, of a dude like holding a box of like, you know, Hawkins donuts looking all glum on his face. And then you have like the, the after picture where you got the six-pack worth of abs. There's no donuts to be seen. I'm thinking, dude, reverse that, right? Reverse that. Like, dude, you should have. The happier thing was before with, with the donuts. Um, you know, I used to love donuts and Netflix, but now I love abs and affirmation, right? That, that's the message. 
That's the message. Now, I have a point with this. The point is this, is that Paul's affections, because what we're talking about in before and after is a, is a changing of our affections. So there was a time Paul is trying to, trying to point out that his affections were at one time for the traditions of his fathers. That was before Christ came to him on the Damascus, Damascus Road and converted him. Acts 8.3 kind of gives us even a little more insight into that. It says that Paul was ravaging the church. He was entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So what we understand is that Paul bent over backwards to keep and uphold Jewish traditions. Well, why is he mentioning this? What what does that have to do with being being a man pleaser? What does this have to do with the authentic gospel? Well, he's trying to point out that keeping the Jewish laws, which he did better than anybody, was insufficient for him and therefore insufficient for them who are now adding Jewish laws to the finished work of Christ and the cross. Paul's testimony is grace-saturated, just like every testimony in this room, right? Paul talks about grace being what invaded his life and brought him from thinking that his righteousness came from the law, right? Now, again, What's so great about this, what's so helpful to us about this is that you can have a crazy, murderous, anti-Christian, everything background like Paul, right? Or you can be a self-righteous, goody two-shoes, right? Whose worst moment is saying like darn at the knitting party, right? (laughs) You can be one of those guys or gals. But listen, the story of salvation, dude, it is the same. It begins the same, which is this, that by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, dude. It is a gift of God, Ephesians 2.8. By grace, God predestined Paul before the foundation of the world. He called him. He always knew that he was going to bring Paul into the family of faith. So he predestined Paul. He predestines all who come to know and love Jesus as Lord. Romans 8 reminds us, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. We don't have time to flesh all of that out, only to know that an all-knowing, all-sufficient, all-powerful God can do things that our minds can't get wrapped around. But Romans 8 says, those who he foreknew and predestined, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what is happening right here? What is happening in in Paul's testimony, what he's trying to point out is that God overruled his desires. That's the story of salvation. That is your story of salvation if you have a story of salvation. God overruled your desire to, in actuality, not want to have anything to do with him. And he said, nope, and he pulled you from death. He called Paul by grace in verse 15 to be conformed to Christ. Now, let's get one thing straight here because we need to understand that God was not pleased by Paul's zeal for Jewish tradition like it says in verse 14. He was not pleased by how well Paul kept the law. He was actually pleased instead to reveal his son to Paul. Tim Keller again says God revealed Christ to Paul so that he could reveal Christ 
through Paul. So that's what's happening here when it says that by grace he was called to preach. So if you're a Christian, God did not predestine you to be one of his own because he saw potential in you. There was no potential there. God didn't send Gabriel down to earth and, you know, bring back like a scouting report to like see how you were. Is this somebody that we, we want to consider, you know? I, I mean, that's not what happened. No, that's not what happens. That's not the story of salvation. It's because of love that God called you like he called Paul by grace, like he called the Galatian church by grace. And because it is such a drastically to the nth degree undeserved love, you know what that also means for us? You know what the good news of that is? That it's so undeserved? That also means it's secure. Because it's undeserved, it's secure. If it was deserved, it means that there's strings. We talked about that last week. There's strings attached right? Like when someone gives you a gift of money, but it's really a loan, when they send you a follow-up letter and say, you know, I just came up with a payment plan for you. It's like, that wasn't a gift. It's like, you were tricked, man. That's a loan. Salvation is not a loan from God. It's a gift from God. In giving the law to the Israelites back in the Old Testament, when Moses, God had given Moses the law, and Moses was laying out the law to the Israelites, this is what he said to them. He said, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and what? Chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. That's what he said. It's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that he has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So we don't, we get into predestination, we get into these sort of these more complex theological uh, debates and doctrines. All we know is that God does what God pleases and God chooses who God chooses. Why does he choose some and not others? We don't know other than he does it out of love and the offer is available. And when we bow our heads and our hearts and submit our lives and repent of our sins and turn away from them, right? When we embrace the gospel truth of the good news of Christ, we know that at that moment we are somebody that God predestined and called and justified and glorified. So to summarize, Paul, man, he defends the gospel that he preached by sharing a testimony, which by the way, let me just point out this. It was a testimony which really wasn't about him highlighting all the gory details of his pre-conversion life. That wasn't his aim. His testimony wasn't making it all about himself, but it was to show how the good news of God's grace authentically changed his life. Do you see Paul's life? Do you see the authentic transformation that happened? He went from pleasing men as somebody who upheld every point of the Jewish law to preaching Christ and denying himself the camaraderie and the approval of men. And the result and the proof here is found in verse 23. Let's pick up here at the end where it says, they only were hearing, and he's talking about all the apostles that finally heard of what Christ had done in his life after all these years. It said, they only were hearing it, said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Verse 24, and it says, they glorified God because of me. So why did I title this sermon, Rival Glories? Well, 
It was because I was struck by Paul's opening and closing statement. When we read Paul's testimony, we're reminded that we have a testimony. And we're also reminded of how easily we are tempted in our testimony to be man-pleasers when it's time for us to share it, when it's time for us to be exposed in our life. So the question then for us this morning becomes, what does your testimony reveal about your life? What will people observe when they see you? When people look at your life, what will they know about God? What will they know about how God has changed you and how he's transforming you? Does your testimony give evidence of being a servant of Christ or of man? Man, those are hard questions to ask, but those are the questions to ask, right? If you claim to be a servant of Christ, here's three things that we're going to close with that should become more true of you as you mature in the faith. Three things that should become more true of us as we are maturing in the faith. Number one, you will increasingly resist the approval of man. You will increasingly resist. None of us are just going to wake up and resist 100%, right? We are people who are works in progress. We are still sinners. We still have parts of us, rather large parts at time, that are going after, seeking after the approval of men. But what are some ways that we seek the approval of men? What does that actually look like? Well, a couple of just simple, broad things are that we're silent. Sometimes God opens doors in our lives at our jobs. Sometimes we're in school. Sometimes we're having conversations with people. God puts us all in, in unique spaces and places so that, we, so that we can share our testimony to the glory of his working in our lives, right? And a lot of times when those doors open up, we kind of just go, ah, and we close them. We're silent because we're afraid. Sometimes uh, we seek the approval of man by showing approval for godlessness, for godless behavior, for affirming things that we know God is not pleased with, by laughing at things, by taking part in things that we know gives God no glory. Sometimes we do it by being so ignorant of the gospel that we unknowingly affirm false ones like the Galatians are, are doing here. Sometimes it's not just outside of the church. Sometimes it's in the church, Right? How do we do that? How do we seek approval of man in the church? Sometimes we do it by avoiding confrontation. We, we do it by, by avoiding hard conversations that need to be had, right? Because some people are, are, are going after the approval of man. And as your brothers and sisters, it's actually part of what we are called to, to pull them off to the side and say, dude, what's going on? There's something off right now. There's something in your heart. There's something going on that disturbs my spirit. And I just want to chat about that. I want to have that hard conversation because I don't want you to end up deserting the gospel by falling back into bitterness and all of those things that come when we start straying. In John 12, 43, the apostle Johnny talks about some of the authorities who heard Jesus. And it said that they believed Jesus when they heard him, but they wouldn't confess it. Because it says they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And then we're warned in Proverbs 29, it says the fear of man lays a snare 
In other words, it's a trap, but it says whoever trusts in the Lord is safe, is safe. So spending our lives ferociously, actively, intentionally going after the glory of God, not seeking the approval of man, it's the only way to truly live safely. It's the only safe life, and it avoids some of the things we just talked about, like being silent when we should open our mouth, right? Because you know what we know, some things we know? We know that an invisible Christian is an oxymoron, right? An invisible Christian is kind of an oxymoron. And at the same time, a Marvel comic Christian is just a straight-up moron, right? So there's a balance, isn't there? Right? We're given discernment, right? So we're not told to be just invisible and silent, but there is a way in which God has given us to communicate his grace and mercy that needs to be gracious and merciful, right? All of us need to reject this Ned Flanders, you know, way of like, uh, you know, submitting our testimonies to the world because it's obnoxious and it's self-righteous and it's uncalled for. Both of these things are man-pleasing in the end. So number one, as we mature in Christ, we'll increasingly resist the approval of man. Number two, people will increasingly glorify God because of you. Listen, nobody gave glory to God when Paul persecuted the church, did they? Nobody was giving glory to God. Imagine the praise, the personal praise that Paul received from the Pharisees for his zeal when he was persecuting the church and was locking men and women up. Imagine the affirmation that he got. And so we say, well, man, that's crazy because, you know, I don't plan on, like, going to Worcester or driving over to Medina and, you know, you know become, like, part of the citizens' police and locking people up for their faith. It's like, yeah, I, I know, but... Again, um, what, what we share with Paul is our tendency towards being glory hogs, right? We like dribbling all the way down the court. We love never passing the ball. And we like making three-pointers every time. Yeah, enjoy that sports analogy right there. <laughs> but you know what? That kind of playing does nothing to shine the spotlight on your coach or the rest of your team. In fact, if that's how you play... You'll become, in a sense, a rival to the very team that you're on and probably eventually be removed. Matthew 5, 16 tells us, in the same way, let your light shine before others. In other words, as, as we're serving others, let our light, let the light of the gospel shine for others. So what? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So the good works that they're going to be giving God glory for are those moments when our testimony is coming out in the way that we serve others and we humble ourselves. So people will increasingly glorify God because of you. And as we mature in the faith, number three, you'll become increasingly jealous for God's glory. Do you catch how, for, listen, do you catch how ferocious Paul seems to be? for getting the gospel correct. I mean, you could just feel the level of angst in him. Like, it's crazy. Like, like we just couldn't get this recorded. I mean, you can see his, like, handshaking when he's, like, writing this letter, right? The level of Paul's angst, man, that should be significant to us. Why? Well, because everything rises or falls on this. Everything rises or falls on the uh, authentic Jesus plus nothing gospel. Does it not? 
A person's life is at stake over whose glory they are seeking. Jesus says that true believers of God seek the glory of God. John 8, 5, 44. How can you believe, he says. You, you hear those words? He, he actually poses a question. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do we see how serious this is? Paul understood how everything was at stake. So, your testimony has value because it shows what happens to a person whose values have been transformed. And you know what? As I was thinking about this, we're going to be faced with some things in Ashland in terms of the way that people receive our testimonies, okay? We're going to be faced with some things. Two of the things I think we'll be faced with um, both in others and in ourselves is, number one, ignorance of the gospel. Just a general ignorance of, of the gospel. Just this general sense that most people have, which is that it's a Jesus plus something else gospel. I don't want any of you to be ignorant in that. I want to die this afternoon knowing that you guys understood the Jesus plus nothing gospel. I want to know that you know, and I don't know that I can know that you know, I'm just telling you that I want to know that you know. Because what we're dealing with here in our community and even in our own hearts is an ongoing ignorance of the gospel. Number two, an ambivalence towards the gospel. I just don't care. I don't see why this changes anything because everything is okay and everything seems to be okay. And I got a life that is managed, right? And I got plates that are spinning and I'm handling things. And what we understand through that is that people are distracted. And distraction is what produces ignorance of the gospel. It's one of the things that produces ambivalence towards the gospel. Remember that when you're out in your community. Remember that in yourself. The ignorance that you bring in the fleshly part of your heart as you're still contemplating the truth of the gospel. Did I believe the gospel every minute, every hour, every day of this week? I did not believe the gospel. There was an ignorance of the gospel. As I'm, as I'm literally reading through the word, as I'm scratching things out to speak, there was an ignorance of the gospel. There were things that I did not believe to be true about God. And ignorance leads to ambivalence. But imagine if we lived this out. Imagine if we were like Paul and we lived out the glory of God in every aspect of our lives. Imagine if you looked at every breathing minute of your life as an opportunity to be a testimony to God's glory over your own. Every word that comes out of your mouth, every thought inside of your head, every action you take with your hands, imagine the happiness that would overflow in your heart as God's glory became increasingly magnified in your life. Imagine the joy that would circulate through our community if the testimonies of Christ emanated from us through acts of selfless love. Imagine that. Imagine the hope that would exist even when all hope seemed otherwise lost because you go through things 
And people go through things, right? Because this authentic gospel has been made ours in Christ, those rival glories that bring so much pain, so much heartache, confusion, and unhappiness, they've been destroyed on the cross. So what do we do? By obedience to Christ, we keep killing them. We keep killing them in exchange for the joy that has made us alive and free. This is the good news. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we have such a clear picture of joy in all of Scripture, which is we find our greatest satisfaction when we are giving you all the glory that you deserve and are worth. God, teach us how to better do that. Convict us of all the different ways that we seek after our own glory, that our testimony gives evidence to self-consumption and self-focus. Lord, continue to unravel those things in our lives, Lord. Let us be like Paul, who speaks of the truth of your grace that has freed us. And Lord, let us walk away this morning happy in our freedom, but also convicted in all of the areas, Lord, that we have embraced slavery over freedom by seeking after things that give us the approval of men rather than you. Help us to be discerning, Lord, because we know that these things that you've given us, this gospel that was given to us at the price of Christ's death on the cross is the path to joy and to happiness and to satisfaction and to fulfillment. Let us not fall back. Let us be astonished at the moments that we fall back into a Jesus plus something else gospel in the way that we live our lives. And Lord, thank you for your grace. What a great grace that we've been given. We are now children of God. Lord, we get to now remember your sacrifice for us with joy and with contemplation. So let us do that. Let us thank you now for your presence among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.